Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine. Here we're trying to make keeping up with literature as easy as possible, and so we're spoon-feeding you that literature. Let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, fat, swollen, angioedema, a nightmare for intubation. What even works? Then what we can do for the COVID patients that we send home. After that, a review of appendicitis without the cutting. Then, so you want to work part-time? How will your patients feel about that decision? And then finally, they're tacky, it's wide complex, sounds like VTAC. Or maybe it's SVT with a barren C. A helping hand on the topic might help you decide. So, this is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by The Balanced, Vivian Lay, Rachel Jennings, Gabby Leonard, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. So, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled, Emergency Department Intubations in Patients with Angioedema, a report from the National Emergency Airway Registry out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Ay, what a nightmare. Airways and angioedema are an ER doc's bad dream. All that swelling, you're short on time as it's worsening, a hoarse voice making me panic just thinking about it. As much as we always want first-pass success, in this case, we really, really, really want it. Trauma in the airway from multiple attempts is just going to make everything worse. So, what a good chance we have here to bring out all the fun toys. Flex scopes, video laryngoscopy, awake intubations. Why don't we take a look-see at what the NEAR database has to say on the topic. These authors found 98 cases of emergency department intubations performed for angioedema from the NEAR registry. 92 of these cases were intubations performed by the emergency physicians themselves. 58% were orotracheal and 42% were nasotracheal. And I'm actually surprised that's quite a few nasotracheal intubations. I rarely see that. The most commonly used devices were flexible endoscopes, used about half the time. Following that, there was the standard geometry video laryngoscopes used 22% of the time, and then 19% of the time were hyperangulated video laryngoscopes. The first pass success overall was 81%, with better success in nasotracheal intubations than overall with the orotracheal group. The highest success rate was with topical anesthesia-only intubation techniques, which were 100% successful. That's awesome. The most common adverse events were hypotension at 13% of the time and hypoxia 12% of the time. Only two patients of all of those patients had cricothyrotomies performed, and there was no airway-related deaths. So that's, you know, pretty reassuring. This was just a tiny sample size, less than 100 patients representing only half a percent of emergency department intubations, and undoubtedly this was confounded by, you know, provider comfort and proficiency with the various techniques. Now, the best success rates were with awake techniques with topical anesthesia. This makes us recall that the best predictors of peri-intubation arrest, at least the factors that are under our control, are pretty much you not being prepared. So with topical anesthesia, though, you are very, very fully prepared. In a spoonful, angioedema airways seem to be managed in a wide variety of fashions. The overall first-passed intubation success rate was 81% in this registry study. Then we have the second article, which was titled Inhaled Budesonide for COVID-19 in People at High Risk of Complications in the Community in the UK Principle a randomized, controlled, open-label, adaptive platform trial out of The Lancet. 
Since the beginning of this pandemic, we have been scrambling to find treatments for COVID. Unfortunately, our track record for developing antivirals is actually kind of crappy. We worked real, real hard for a real long time to do much about HIV, and we still can't cure that. We do pretty well with hepatitis C now, and even okay with herpes. But the list doesn't go very far past that. We were quite fortunate to find that steroids were very helpful in COVID, but that's only in hospitalized patients. To date, we haven't had too much success in those patients that we send home. Now, while generalized, steroids don't seem to be very effective in this population, the ones going home, what if we were more targeted and we gave them just inhaled steroids? Would this help our discharged patients? This trial was an open-label randomized trial done from April 2020 to March 2021 in the UK, enrolling a little over 3,600 patients considered high risk for COVID infection-related complications. Now, this was meaning that the patients were over 65 years old or over 50 years old with comorbidities. These authors compared usual care, that is antipyretics and oral hydration, to the same plus inhaled budesonide. There was also an other treatment category which consisted of the now proven less than clinically useful treatments that we won't bother discussing really. There were two primary outcomes measured, not very primary, I know, whatever, we'll forgive them. They were the number of days to self-reported recovery and the number of days to either hospitalization or death. The group with the inhaled budesonide had just over three less days until recovery which was statistically significant, obtaining a probability of superiority over 0.999. These patients also felt subjectively better, having a better sense of well-being while recovering and once recovered. Which sounds really nice and all, but actually makes me a little bit more worried that this difference was given by placebo. And, you know, you have to take into account that this was an open-label design. The harder outcomes of hospitalization or death were also a little bit lower in the budesonide group, 6.8% versus 8.8%, but the credibility intervals spanned past one. So the probability of superiority actually fell below the author's preset threshold of 0.975. So keep in mind that this data would have been muddied though by the institution of vaccination programs during the study. It also bears mentioning that the dose of budesonide used in this study, which was 800 micrograms twice a day, is very high, and that kind of dosing is not even available in the United States. However, other similar-ish dosages can be done on label. Now, given that budesonide for a few weeks really has quite an excellent safety profile, I won't be too skeptical of these results. All in all, though, I would not leave here with that much certainty that it's necessarily all that effective. But something I think that is underutilized in medicine is the placebo effect. So with that in mind, I'm totally on board. Three less days of symptoms sounds okay to me. In a spoonful for high-risk patients with COVID who can still be sent home, this trial showed inhaled budesonide to decrease the duration of self-reported symptoms by three days. Really not so bad. Then we have the third article titled Treatment of Acute Uncomplicated Appendicitis out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Acute appendicitis is the most common emergency abdominal surgery, an average lifetime risk of 7-8%. to That's wild. When untreated, you risk rupture, sepsis, even death. Now, traditionally, up to 80% of uncomplicated appendicitis cases have been managed with urgent appendectomy. 
We aren't very traditional here, though. We want to chase that cutting edge. And in today's day and age, sometimes it's just not convenient to get surgery. Let's visit on the latest in non-operative appendicitis treatments. Now, there exist three large multicenter trials which have addressed operative versus non-operative management of acute appendicitis. Now, first, let's define low-risk patients because these are the ones that you're going to be able to treat without surgery. These are the patients with no appendicolith, abscess, tumor, phlegmon, or perforation. They're hemodynamically stable. They have symptoms for less than 48 hours. The appendiceal diameter is less than 11 millimeters, and their white blood cell count is less than 18,000. So let's get into those three trials. We have the APPAC APAC trial, which evaluated 530 adult patients at five years. Now, most of these patients improved with antibiotics, but 27% of them still had to get an appendectomy at the one-year time point. The five-year complication rates were similar between the two groups with no increased rates of perforation, but those with appendectomy had less overall days off work or with decreased activity, seven days compared with 19 days if you were treated with antibiotics. Next, we have the CODA trial. This was a bigger trial, 1,500 adult patients, looking at 90-day outcomes. Those with appendiculus, well, they fared worse on antibiotics, and they needed more appendectomies. And those with uncomplicated appendicitis, though, treatment with antibiotics actually decreased the disease burden in the first 90 days. So five days versus eight days. And then the last trial, which was MWPSC. Now, this was done on children, a thousand children, and looked at one-year outcomes. 86% of these patients initially responded to antibiotics, but 33% of them required appendectomy within one year. There was, however, a decrease in the disease burden in the antibiotic group, four days compared to seven days. Now, for all patients, antibiotics to cover aerobes and anaerobes should be given, something like ertapenem or ceftriaxone with metronidazole. If you're not going to operate, then you can continue to cover for seven to ten days using something like a third-generation cephalosporin or a fluoroquinolone plus metronidazole. You should give all of these patients very clear return instructions and ensure that they have the means to return to the hospital as well. All in all though, it seems like in the short term, most uncomplicated appendicitis cases could be treated with antibiotics. In the long term, they're likely to still need an appendectomy and might even be worse off if they don't get it right away. They could be sick for more days in total. It's a conversation that's worth having with your patients, but having a good non-operative option really is great to see. In a spoonful, uncomplicated appendicitis can be effectively managed with antibiotics in most patients. However, they should understand that they're still likely to require an appendectomy down the line, though over the first year, they're likely to have less days that they're sick compared to if they'd gotten surgery. What I really like about this study, don't tell anybody, is that now this becomes a really nice viable option if you say, I don't know, have appendicitis when you're in space and you're an astronaut, I really want to go to space. Anyways, on to the fourth article. Association between physician part-time clinical work and patient outcomes out of the JAMA internal medicine. Since doctors are generally, you know, self-selected overachievers, many have other duties besides being a physician. Some do research, administrative duties, teaching, some just want to run away into the wilderness, climb mountains, and rock climb every chance they get. 
But what does having a reduction in the number of shifts that you work in the clinical time that you put in, what does this reduction do on the quality of care that you provide? This study was a cross-sectional analysis of Medicare patients over 65 who were cared for by doctors, hospitalists in this case, with varying numbers of days worked per year. So not emergency doctors, but you know, we're not all that different really. Very interestingly, the 30-day mortality was actually higher when patients were cared for by hospitalists who worked fewer days per year. The bottom quartile of doctors had a 30-day mortality of 10.5%, the second quartile 10%, third 9.5%, and the fourth 9.6%. So we always talk about skill decay in surgeons, but I guess it kind of affects us all. If you're concerned, then the magic number of shifts seems to be 130 shifts per year. Above that, and there's no significant improvement in mortality of your patients. This was a natural study, not randomized. So there is the possibility of confounders, but the authors did do nine different sensitivity analyses, which makes it, you know, makes sense, and they're probably not wrong. But all considered, guys, you know, keep in mind that your extracurriculars could also enhance your practice in ways that aren't measured here. So I'm sure they're not all bad. In a spoonful, working less shifts per year increases the 30-day mortality of patients treated by those hospitalists. And then finally, we have the last article, which was titled Diagnostic Approach to Wide Complex Tachycardia out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. Oh, I had such a good case of this the other week, so I'm really happy to talk about it. So while your first thought for a wide complex tachycardia should be about assuring hemodynamic stability, there exists a group of patients who are really quite stable. If they're unstable, then, then of course you're going to shock them. But if they're stable, then it's not always clear exactly what you're going to do or what exactly they have. You'll have to do a little bit more work in thinking about it, since ventricular tachycardia and supraventricular tachycardia with aberrancy they look pretty similar on ECG, and their treatments can be a little bit different. These authors took a case report as an opportunity to review the diagnostic approach to wide complex tachycardia. The first thing you should do is, of course, review the patient's history. Nearly 90% of patients with wide complex tachycardia and a history of an MI will be in ventricular tachycardia. Failing that, here are a few things to look for on the ECG of these patients. These are features that you look for that tell you that it's probably ventricular tachycardia. First, you can look at AV dissociation. So you can look at P waves marching through at a slower rate, and some of them will even be captured beats. Or there's also fusion beats, where the two meet each other. Then there's QRS positivity and lead AVR. After that, QRS concordance throughout the precordium, so they're all going to point in the same direction. And then QRS duration longer than 160 milliseconds. And then finally, you should have a broad and notched intrinsic deflection. That's the initial part of the QRS. For examples of all of these, there's an excellent ECG from the article, which can be found on our blog. In a spoonful, in a stable patient with wide complex tachycardia, first look for a history of MI. If that's present, just treat as VTAC. If not, then there were some key ECG features to tip you off that it might be VTAC. All right, that wraps us up. That's all I've got to say, really. Oh, except for this quick wrap-up. Let's do the quick wrap-up. I like the quick wrap-up. So what did we learn today? First off, best bring your whole tool belt to the resuscitation bay for angioedema. It's good to be facile with a wide variety of airway techniques, many of which are used in angioedema, so it would seem, and likely for a variety of clinical scenarios. Overall, first-pass success rates were 81%, and the best being with topical anesthesia approaches. 
From the second article, at this point, I'd say that COVID patients who are hospitalized definitely benefit from oral steroids. And high-risk discharge patients, you know, they could be benefiting from inhaled steroids. And that's still on the table. Inhaled budesonide decreased symptom duration by three days. From the third article, non-operative acute appendicitis management is really quite viable. It might not be the final answer for a lot of patients, but in the short term for uncomplicated cases, it's a good option. From the fourth article, so you want to work less. Okay, I can't blame you, but your patients might if you work less than 130 days per year. Since this increased the 30-day mortality of patients treated by those hospitalists. From the last article, wide complex tachycardia with a history of myocardial infarction should pretty much just be assumed to be VTAC. Otherwise, you can look for a few specific features on the ECG which could hint you off that it's VTAC. When in doubt, probably assume VTAC. And that's it. That's all that wraps us up. Now then, you've earned them. We offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can also be found at that very same place. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is really to provide better care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>